0: Hi folks, welcome to the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters, and this is part two of our Edward Longshanks series. I'm John Badbeau, and we are going to be talking about hammering the Scots, mm. the bit I've been looking forward to.
1: Yeah, so this episode, these two episodes on Longshanks, mm. thought we'd deal with them more thematically, chronologically as well. But mm. last time we talked about nearly everything of importance apart from the Scottish question. Mm. Um, so in this one, I want to do a whole episode on it. I'll be quoting mainly from Mark Morris, Mark Morris's book on Edward I, because he goes into lots of detail, lots and lots of detail about the campaigns, many years worth of campaigns in Scotland, hmm. and how things just got progressively worse. Um, so I guess we could just jump straight in.
0: Yeah, um, I think it might be worth contextualising it. I mean, England doesn't actually invade Scotland that much before this point, does it?
1: No, that's one of the big elements is that for quite a few decades before this, there'd been almost complete peace with the Scots. Mm. Um, In fact, just before we get into it, can I do a little segment on Eleanor of Castile, um, Edward's first wife? uh, Because I didn't talk about that last time, and I think it is one of the other elements that need to get mentioned. Yeah, of course. Um, Along with Edward's treatment of the Jewish community, which we'll deal with at the end. Um, so his first wife, Eleanor of Castile, they'd been... Uh, Edward was completely faithful to her, apparently. They, she got pregnant like 14 times or something. And uh, there's no stories of him being sort of a philanderer, a womaniser mm. in any real way. He seemed to genuinely love her. He, he seemed to actually um, ask her about policy. He didn't give her a place in government or anything. But he would actually ask her and his mother, who lived to be extremely ancient, he would ask them their opinion on policy and things. Hmm. So he was quite close to, very, very, very close to her. And in fact, she even would help in in diplomatic ways. She could act as a, a diplomat. Hmm. So when she died in 1290 of um, just a natural cause, his natural illness. Some people think it might have been a type of malaria she might have contracted in in France at some point. But anyway. Um, she was only forty-nine, and he was fifty-one at the time. They'd been married for thirty-six years, uh, so you know, when heartbroken. Pe- yeah, right. He really was. When people are married for that long, hmm. and they're that close, you know, you become almost like a, a symbiotic organism. Well, you can't really imagine your life without. All uh, right, right. So when she died, sort of out of the blue, she was ill for a few weeks, but no more than that. And then she pops her clogs, and he was devastated. Um, and one of the important things, or interesting things, well-known things, is that uh, she died up near Lincoln, was mm. it, um, and when they processed her body down to London, um, at every stop where she stayed, they built a cross, they called the, the, the Eleanor Crosses. Yeah, I did Isn't know about Eleanor that, actually. They actually built three tombs for her, obviously she was only interred in one. Um, but 12 crosses at the mm. different stages. And the last one, or penultimate one, was at Charing Cross. Mm. And it's still there to this day. Really? Incredibly, yeah. Right, okay. it's, just, it's just sort of outside Embankment Station. If you walk up the hill from Embankment, you get out the front of Charing Cross Station. <clears throat>
0: I've been there numerous times. And right i right next you know, to McDonald's. I had no idea how it was named
1: or what was there. I'll yeah. have to look for that next time I'm there. Yeah, it's original thirteenth century, which mm-hmm. is very, very, very rare. Mm. Um, there's just taxis going around it. Yeah. And people eating their McDonald's and stabbing out their cigarettes on it and stuff. But anyway, anyway, that is there. Yeah, um, that's very romantic, though, isn't it? Mm. You know, he obviously
0: got a beautiful Spanish wife, falls in love with her, spends thirty six years with her, and then is heartbroken when she dies. Mm. And then goes on a sort of romantic crusade to mm. memorialize
1: her across the country. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, and uh, he does get remarried a few years later to a much younger woman. What is it Margaret of France? In this story, all the women hmm. are either of any note are either called Eleanor or Margaret. All of them. Yeah. No, there's one exception: Florence of Holland. There's a Florence of Holland at one point, but anyway, they're nearly all called Margaret. Yeah. Especially in Scotland. Um. So. So that's the story of of was the first Edward I's mourning over his wife. Um, so let's get into the Scottish thing. Yeah, where I said there had been peace for ages mm. um, since really Henry the onwards. Um, so here's the sort of the key the absolute key pivotal thing. Is that the English crown considered themselves overlords, over kings of any Scottish king? Yeah. The Scottish king considers himself completely independent, truly independent.
0: And this goes back as far as Ethelstan. Uh,
1: right. Well, yeah, the Scots even sort of refused to accept the authority of Rome hmm. during the ancient time. During ancient time. Yeah. You know, I mean, I respect that. The Romans had battles up in Scotland, yep. Grampian and stuff. So anyway, um, you know, Hadrian. Obviously, only got as far as, yeah. well, not even as quite as far as the, the fourths, and the, in the age of the Antonines, a bit later. Never completely subdued all the Highlands or anything. So anyway, what had happened in the few decades before the 1290s, uh, that they'd had a king David, King David the first, and then Alexander, King Alexander the third of Scotland, and Alexander the third seems to have been quite a good king insofar as he sort of kept peace. And he united Scotland in various ways, because Scotland was a bit of a patchwork. The the people in the south, in the Lowlands, were much more Anglo-Norman or English in all, mm. in various ways. People in in the west on the Western Isles were, as you can imagine, more Celtic or looked towards Ireland. Mm. People on the east sort of were more Nordic, looked towards Scandinavia, Viking. Yeah. So there's all sorts of Different people. I was reading uh, uh, something else the other day and it was saying that Wales is a very like, sort of homogenous and united thing. They're like ancient Britons. Mm. But Scotland's not like that. Uh, the people of the Highlands don't necessarily like or trust the people of the Lowlands. Uh, uh, and it was the case even in, in the 13th century. Um, so, anyway, these reigns of David and Alexander were so sort of peaceful. Um, and the kings of England had their hands full in all sorts of other ways, that it never came to a head. Both sides yeah. were happy to just let the issue, neither side raise the issue of the English crown being the superior crown. They were just both just sort of let it slide. It was in their interests. Yeah. But this comes up now. Um, and you could probably imagine that Longshanks um, is not of the mind to let the Scots necessarily be true sovereigns, completely independently in their own right. <clears throat> so um, what provokes the issue? Okay, so King Alexander III of Scotland, um, he didn't have any uncles or brothers or children, um, and even his wife had died, and he got remarried to a, a young, apparently a young beautiful woman, and uh, one evening trying to get back to her in the in maybe he was drunk he got separated from his entourage and rode his horse off a cliff
0: <laughs> i don't mean to laugh, but that's funny
1: yeah just okay
0: yep yeah and and died um so that's not good for the lineage of the scottish crown
1: so for scotland they were like oh we'd sort of expected sort of hoped for him because he was in his 40s mm. he wasn't young but he wasn't old um, he, They'd expect him to live for a few decades yet and sort it out, and with his new wife, Cyra Child and things. Well, it turns out she was pregnant. Oh. So everyone was like, they, the Scots put a regency council in place mm-hmm. of six guardians, they called them, six guardians, and we'll wait for this baby to be born. But it was a stillbirth. Oh. So everyone was like, oh, <laughs> crap. <laughs> yeah. Right? So they started, Scott started looking through uh, all the lineages of the families, and they had to go back a, hundred, a couple of hundred years um, to try and sort things out, and it didn't look like it looked like it was going to be really messy and difficult. But then they used the, old, the age-old trick. Well, if we don't use very very strict primogeniture, if we use growth through women, the women's line, well, there's a we've got a princess right now. So Alexander's sister, a Margaret, had married the King of Norway and had a, a daughter. Margaret, (laughs) so she's called the Maid of Norway, Hmm. and she's only like three when Alexander dies. She's like three years old, three or four, small child, and um, so she's the Maid of Norway. So when the his actual son was stillborn, and when it looked like there wasn't any immediate cousins or branches, they're like, "Well, there is the Maid of Norway. We could do that." And now Edward Longshanks, he's got a son Hmm. who becomes Edward II. He's always called Edward of Carmarvon in this, so I'll, but I'll just call him the Prince of Wales or Edward II or something. Um, he's like two years old at the time. So the thinking is maybe, and the Scots aren't particularly happy with this, but they understand it's probably their best shot. What if- They get married. They get married, because you can marry little kids, Yeah, yeah. that's not a problem. Um, we'll get them married and we'll have a union of the crowns. Hmm. And when Edward's old enough, Become king, he'll be king of England and Scotland. Bish, bash, bosh, everyone's yeah. a winner,
0: right? Uh, Just to be clear, marriage is a
1: very political act in uh, the ro- royal politics 700, 800 years ago. They were still too young to be legally married. Like, I think you have to be hmm. like seven or eight or yeah, nine or something. Betrothed. Right. Yeah. And that's good enough. That is a political yeah. union, a political thing. Um, as I say, the Scots are particularly happy with it, but it's not—they're not so unhappy with it that they won't go along with it or they won't raise rebellion to prevent it. Could or be worse. Yeah, it's sort of the best yeah. shot they've got at this. I mean, point. The, the, um, there
0: is a line of legitimacy there, right? Like, yeah, there's you know, something. She's, right. She is related to the dead king, uh, and marrying the king's son—that he's not a nobody; like he's yeah. going to be the king of England. This is, you mm. know, this is, this mm. is not like
1: a humiliation or something. Mm. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's about the best they could hope for. Um, so, they go to do that and everyone's um, looking forward to it um, and got sort of great levels of enthusiasm for it. Um, you know, we could have united the crowns hundreds mm. of years before we did. Mm. Um, it could have, could have avoided centuries of misery and bloodshed. But when, as the maid is coming over, by the time she gets to the Orkney Islands, she's dead. Natural causes.
0: Yeah. Mid- Middle
1: Ages. Yeah, This happens. So when she dies, literally everyone's like, oh, what? Really? Okay, we're, we're a bit screwed now. Yeah. Because what it meant, and everyone knew it's what it meant, is that there'll now be a lot of the Scottish warlords or the Scottish magnates mm. the powerful men of Scotland, are going to dispute it. And even the Crown of England might dispute it. So it is just completely up for grabs. Now, the main two contenders, in the end, there were like 13 claimants. Hmm. But only two, or three, but really two, were serious. Um, uh, John Balliol um, and Robert... Robert de Bruce or Robert Bruce. Mm-hmm. Now, in the film Braveheart, you see the Bruce, right? Briefly, um, but now that now the one you see in Braveheart, that's the grandson of this Bruce. Oh, is it right? So there's three Bruces in this story,
0: and they're all called Robert. Yeah.
1: yeah. And uh,
0: I hate medieval naming conventions. And the What's Elders- Edward's son
1: called Edward. Mm. What's Robert's son called Robert? What does Ed- Edward the Second name his son Edward? Yeah. Three Edwards in a a row. It's worse than Carthage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, the first Robert the Bruce, the grandfather, is sort of the main one for most of our story. The middle one is sort of ineffectual. Mm. He has a part to play, but it's minimal. Uh, But the grandson is sort of the main, most famous Robert the Bruce. Again, the one you see in the film Braveheart. But his story is right at the end of this episode of Mm. Epochs. And if and when we do Edward II, he 's got a big role to play really mm. in that story. he's the one who saw it's an apocryphal story, but saw the spider weaving and mm. so okay that's the grandson so we're a bit of, uh, a few years off from him. Um, so Baliol and Bruce from the Bruce um, they seem to have been fairly evenly matched in terms of how much authority and political sway they could and money they. Could sort of bring to the contest. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't clear, it really wasn't clear which one should really win. Both of their claims are uh, fairly similar. Um, And so at one point it looks like early on in the story, it looks like Balliol just gets it locked down. It looks like Edward's probably going to lean towards Balliol, but then Mm. Robert Bruce gives his. Uh, pledges feel to, completely to Edward. He says, if I am king, I will absolutely bend the knee. The whole question of who's the over-king, hmm. well, there'll be no question of that. You will be my suzerain lord, and as king of Scotland I shall bend the knee to you. So that suddenly threw the scales, at least in Edward's mind, a bit more towards Bruce. Yeah, because I mean, Ed- um,
0: Edward's influence here must have been felt uh, very strongly. That's the thing. Cause, I mean, he's the king of a rich and powerful kingdom that's right next door. Has putative claims to overlordship, whether these are manifested in reality or not. Like this is a an interesting political
1: triangle mm. that comes into play. Well, during the few years previously with the whole Maid of Norway thing, Edward had sort of ingratiated himself with the Scottish nobles in mm. the Scottish court and the six guardians of regency, um, uh, who continued to sort of ba- basically rule Scotland even after the yeah. heir. Um, hadn't lived um Edward the first has ingratiated himself because they're supposed to be he's going to be marrying into them and all that sort of thing so for a few years Edward had been a good boy mm. he'd been playing the friend yeah. card, probably sending them gifts that maybe. we're friends and neighbors yeah, yeah. right exactly yeah. that he did exactly yeah. that he sent them all sorts of gifts for the maid yeah. when she should arrive and so he'd been yeah his angle his political angle had been that yeah. I'm a very very good friend and neighbor yeah. which is very sensible. So at this stage, when it looks like perhaps even civil war could break out between Baliol and Bruce, the, the guardians, and sort of there's like the, the Bishop of Glasgow, is sort of an important person, um, they think, you know, why can't we go to Edward Longshanks and, you, and get him to act as an arbiter? Because if he's the overlord, this is effectively like he's just replacing one of his earls. Yeah. It's in his interest to get, get it right and help us out and not descend into civil war. That's in, in, in his interest. And just to be clear as well,
0: like yeah. I can't overemphasise the fact that there's no bad blood between the English and the Scottish at this point.
1: Not, no, not like, a massive amount, no. Like, yeah, not,
0: not, not like there will be in future generations. So it's a perfectly reasonable thing. So, well, why wouldn't he be a fair arbiter? Mm. You know, he's, he's a reasonable man and he's competent and well-respected. Why wouldn't we ask him?
1: Absolutely. And let me add to that by saying that all throughout this period, or the middle and last half of Edward's reign, mm. he's got all sorts of problems in on the continent with France, uh, in Flanders, mm. in Guienne, in Gascony, all sorts of problems with the Pope that I'll only touch on a little bit. But the point about it is, is that by this time by the 1290s early 1290s he's got this reputation as being quite a great diplomatist mm. being um, being a peacekeeper a peace broker mm. that's one of the one of the strings to edward i's bow he's not just a conquering warlord like caesar mm. uh, he also is yeah he has a reputation in france or in europe for being able to broker peace so the scots uh, like he's obviously is a great yeah he's a great well, he's, Eddie, choice. so far
0: he seems like a very competent intellectual and reasonable man so why wouldn't you and like yeah. you say he's he's cultivated an excellent
1: reputation in this regard so mm. brilliant mm well mark morris says about this stage that the that the scots had uh, hoped that he would act as uh, as a friend and neighbor But Morris says, quote, the king's intentions, however, were far from friendly or neighbourly. Death, in taking the maid, the maid of Norway, Mm. had robbed him of a rich prize and within just a few weeks he had uh, had also deprived him of his own beloved queen. Some people say that his heart sort of hardened Mm. after Enel of Castile died. They say that about Stalin, he had a wife when he was young, Mm. in his early twenties and she died of natural causes. And they said that, or well, he said of himself that all humanity died in me when she died. And it's totally possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, Morris goes on um, after Edward had lost his wife. Uh, Edward retreat, retreated to Ashridge, and there in his mourning, he began to formulate a new plan. According to one English chronicler, this was revealed to his, mag- his magnates when they assembled early in the, in the new year. The king, we are told, quote, said that it was in his mind to reduce the King and Kingdom of Scotland to his rule, as he had recently subjected Wales to his authority, End quote. And that's a line from the time. Yeah. So, seems that in his mind, um, that just the, the question of being the over king needed to be sort of stamped on the Scots. Mm. Um why he wanted to do that at this stage necessarily. As you pointed out, there isn't any bad blood. I mean years, a few years down the line, you can sort of see why he becomes more and more hammer-like towards the Scots. Yeah. They sort of keep giving him no option in, in some ways. But at this point, <clears throat> I think there is something on him that you didn't need to sort of act like yeah, that or be yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so there's a bit of a a, um, something of a standoff where he goes up to Scotland. Um, The River Tweed was the 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 border, yeah. And there's Berwick there, Berwick upon Tweed, and uh, on the Scottish side. And then there's another town a bit down the River Tweed on our side. Hmm. And Edward goes there, and all the Scots magnates are in Berwick, and they're like, "Well, come to Berwick, we're going to talk right." And Edward's like, "No, no." You come to on the English side of the border, and immediately the Scots are like, "Whoa, wait, what? That's very symbolic. Why are we? Why have we got to do that?" Um, like you, we need to settle this in Scotland because in the future we don't want you to be able to say that we submitted to you in any way, mm. uh, because we want our king to be our king, not an under king of of you, not a client king of yours. Which is
0: Understandable.
1: Um, so the Scots are sort of immediately suspicious, but they do go, they do go to Edward uh, because he hasn't got a reputation for in the film braveheart. He doesn't just lock people up in a wooden hut and sell it alone. Well, he's not a tyrant, though. No. He's not. Yeah, he's not like he does abide nearly always hmm. by sort of the the code, the law of chivalry, where you don't just murder people hmm. like that. Um, but nonetheless, for political reasons, the Scottish. Was suspicious. They sort of, they'd sort hoped that they'd go and meet him. There'd be one sort of grand meeting, mm. some sort of writ or charter, would, everyone would sign it, and he would choose between Balliol or Bruce, and that would be the end of it.
0: And it's not an unreasonable hope either, mm. actually. Because, I mean, like I said, leading up to this point, you would think, well, he's not a, he's not a maniac. Mm. Like, he'll probably just do something sensible. Like, there's every reason to think that he'll do something sensible.
1: But they go there, and Edward says, um, he basically says, um, uh, "I'm going to decide between all the claimants." Hmm. And they're like, "And Scott's like You mean between Bruce and Bailey?'" And, and Edward's like, "No, all the claimants. There's many, many claimants, sort of including myself, basically, <laughs> or <laughs> including that's my that's... son potentially. It's not made yeah. clear, but yeah. this idea that it's just between Bruce and Bailey." Get that out of your mind, Scottish Mm. people, because I'm gonna do And they wanted him to be a type of adjudicator, not Mm. just a final judge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They wanted him to give his opinion, and that would have such weight that the question would be closed. Not him to legally say, I'm stamping, I'm Mm. doing this now. They didn't want that. They didn't. So (laughs) um
0: And I really can't help but feel that, say, twenty years ago, he wouldn't have done that. As well, like you know, there seems to be a change in his character from the death of his wife.
1: Um, So there's a character called Robert Wishart, who was the the Bishop of Glasgow, and one of these guardians, and he comes up a few times in the story. He is, if you're Scottish or you're in on rooting for the Scottish side of this story, he's sort of one of the main guys. He's sort of Mm. he's sort of a die-hard Scotland first, Scotland forever. Guy. i'll stand up for scotland even if it costs me my life sort of sort of guy and you've got to admire him you've yeah. got to admire him a bit standing up to long shanks not many people did so anyway at this meeting all the scots are It says it pretty much just a gas like just silent like uh we're sort of expecting you just to say baliol yeah and this is not what's happening um, <laughs> um then Mark Morris says, quote, it was Robert Wishart, Bishop, Bishop of Glasgow and Guardian, who recovered himself sufficiently to, to respond on behalf of the startled Scots. In the first place, he said, it did not matter uh, what they, as temporary custodians, might or might not concede. Only a King of Scotland could answer such a momentous demand, I. letting the, uh, basically letting the authority of the King of England be absolute over Scotland. Yeah. In base, that's basically what Edward's asking. I make the decisions here, including who, or who isn't your king. Scots like, you can't... It's not cheeky. Yeah. You've, you're not... yeah. <laughs> so, um, only a king of Scotland could answer such momentous demand. Secondly, the bishop uh, took Edward to task over his reasoning. Oh yeah, that was the other thing. Edward had come up with this sort of really elaborate reasoning why the crown should have, sort of, should, should legally be Able to do this, some like going back way into the depths of time and um, saying, you, you, one of your kings bent the knee to Henry the second, one of them bent the knee to William the Conqueror, hmm. one of them bent the knee to Ethelstan. There's precedent here, you guys bend the knee now.
0: I mean, technically,
1: there is, precedent. Uh, um,
0: yeah, like he's technically not wrong,
1: but none of those guys, Ethelstan the Conqueror or Henry the second ever completely subdued scotland no you know? they,
0: they well i mean the normans did do something didn't they yeah yeah oh well, yeah but, and the you know and the uh, athelstan of brunevar, but like this is hundreds of years ago
1: yeah yeah um so he would come up with this elaborate thing hmm. and and then he'd said to them uh, if you don't agree with that prove me wrong and <laughs> and they said No, no, it's up to you to make sure you're proved right, not us to prove you wrong. So Robert- (laughs) The button approves on you, sir. Yeah, yeah. That's what Robert Wishart, the Bishop of Glasgow, says to him. He said uh, that they were not obliged, they, the Scots, were not Mm. obliged to prove him wrong, rather he should prove himself right. Thirdly, um, and most caustically, Wishart reminded the English King that he was supposed to be a crusader and observed that a threat to unleash war against a defenceless people did him no credit. Oh, that was the final thing. Edward said, and if you don't submit to this, it's, it's red war, I'll give you. Like, straight away, he says that to him. It's like, you, you know, if you don't just do as I'm asking right here, right now, say asking, tailing, I've got an army ready. In fact, there's a fleet just off the coast. I could raise an army at the, in a blink of an eye, so you're doing as you're told.
0: And the thing is, again, um, like, how warlike are the Scots really at this point? Like, when was the last time they put a big army in the field?
1: Uh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, their their culture is very. I'm very not saying they don't warrior plan, like, it. but yeah, they hadn't.
0: But that's not the same thing. No, you right. Know, getting a hundred men together to raid another clan across the glen or something, that's one thing. Getting twenty thousand men organized and in the field to march, mm. that's something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Edward does this a lot.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> if there's one thing he can do,
0: it's win battles.
1: Yeah, he's been fighting already here for 20, 30 years of his life, Yeah, he's been on crusade. I mean, he must have
0: been one of the most seasoned kings in Europe.
1: Yeah, right, yeah. Like, great. Yeah, lots and lots of campaigning yeah. in Wales and and France. Yeah, and on crusade. Yeah, right, yeah. And just, yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, he said, um, uh, the Bishop of Glasgow said it wasn't to his credit just to threaten war, on on a peaceful people that had come to you to try and settle a dispute. Scots like what what do we do? Uh (laughs) But at this last, Edward was predictably enraged and prompted to issue a new threat. Uh, He would indeed lead a crusading army, he declared, against the Scots. Yeah, so he's a bit more... You can see why the depiction in Braveheart, and in the mind, the minds of a lot of Scottish people, mm. he is sort of pretty, pretty much a baddie.
0: Yeah, he's he being to a dick, imperious. Yeah, anyway. unnecessarily aggressive. Yeah, like what? What have they actually done to warrant this other than being Scottish?
1: It's just one of those things, though, where you know, in his mind, he's the overking. Though mm. it would be like Hampshire or Cornwall claiming they've got their own king, and yeah. that. Yeah. You can't tell us who or isn't our king. You'd be like, able... no, 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 no. Yeah. They, no, they... no, no, I'm your king.
0: He feels that they are insulting the dignity of his office. Mm. That's what he is defending here, mm. is the honour of being the king of England and the position of the crown of England relative to the other crowns of the British Isles. And, okay, yeah, and and it's important to remember that these people do all believe deeply in honour and the sort of metaphysics that surrounds the crowns of England, Scotland, and Ireland and Wales. So the, these things are all important. But I have to say, it does feel, from the sort of perspective of history, that he was just throwing his weight around. Right? Yeah. does does feel a lot like that. Yeah. And I feel the Scots
1: kind of felt that too, just like, it's happening. <laughs> well, one thing I'll say, I might have the quote later, but it seems that to begin with, because this goes on until he, his death, essentially. Mm the um, uh, best part of 15, 16, 17 years. Um, to begin with, it seems, he thought of Scotland in exactly the same way as Wales. Mm. I can recreate what I did in Wales in Scotland. Mm. <clears throat> um, I've got enough men and money and resources that I can beat them in any battle, mm. and then even if it takes a few years, I can build castle, uh, strings of castles and I can ferret them out from the Highlands. Like the Highlands of Scotland are... uh, The the mountains and valleys are the same as in Wales. I can redo Mm. Wales. That's just a completely incorrect calculation. Right. It's nothing the same at all. The Highlands of Scotland are much more formidable than Snowdonia. It's much bigger. Much bigger. Much more wild. Yep. The Scots are just... It's just a different story. It's just Mm. a different kettle of fish. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.